Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Jake Taylor. Jake is a man of many hats. He is the CEO of Farnham Street. He's the founder of the new Journalytic app. He's the author of The Rebel Allocator, one of the co-hosts of Value After Hours, where he serves large offerings of veggies every week. We're going to talk about many of these things today. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Appreciate it. Of course. So, Jake, why don't you just briefly share like how you got interested in investing and your journey in life that has taken like, you to where you are now? Sure. I'll give the kind of quicker version because I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts before. So um, my under, I got my undergrad degree in economics. I got a job running the power grid out of school. Uh, terrific place to work. Love the people. Um, felt like I was doing something good for society by keeping the lights on. Uh, but while I was in running the grid, I went back for a nights and weekends MBA program at UC Davis. And I ended up winning this lottery in my first year in the program that allowed me to travel back to Omaha and have lunch with Warren Buffett. And he's done these student things, you know, for years. Um, so this isn't like that special of a thing, although it felt pretty special to me at the time. Um, sure, sure, sure. And I, I came to realize like, wow, like how, one, how does this guy have a, such a thought, a thoughtful, smart answer to every single question that was asked of him and, and just like blew me away. So I wanted to figure out how he knew so many things. And then two, uh, like, how did he get so rich? And like, what, you know, I, I'm interested in, in having more wealth than I had at that time. And um, right, that right. seemed like a good idea. Like this guy seems to have figured some stuff out. So after I started digging in and learning about him, I realized, oh, okay, he just likes to get a good deal on things. Like I've, I've been doing that also in other contexts of my life. I just didn't know that when you did it in the, in buying partial ownership of businesses in public markets, they called it value investing. So it was like take a duck taking the water. Like it made perfect sense to me. Um, not that necessarily that my execution of it was was always that great at the beginning, but um, but the the ethos made sense to me. So uh, I actually I worked in both uh, the power grid and setting up a, an investment shop, and I did both of them for several years uh, while I was figuring out how to grow that business enough to to be able to leave. And eventually, I did, um, and that left, and I was able to focus on Farnham Street, uh, and then. In around, probably I'll call it 2017-ish, 2018, uh, you know, markets were, I thought, pretty expensive. I wasn't finding a ton of things to work on. And I, uh, rather than kind of talk myself into some marginal investment ideas, I uh, had been wanting to write this book for a while. And so that's what I, you know, I focused some of my efforts there was uh, on writing The Rebel Allocator. Um, and then <clears throat> kind of a similar story. Um uh, you know, a couple years later, I was, there were all these things I wanted to know about my investment process that I've been thinking about. And I knew they were important on the front end of, you know, if I could understand them, that they would, they would meaningfully improve my results on the back end. And that's, this is the difficult thing about the investment world is that the only thing you can control is your process. The outcomes are going to be what they're going to be. And if you could just get a little bit better at your process every single day and be mindful of it, then I think you have a shot at doing even better on your outcomes. So um, 
I, you know, being very process oriented, there were all these things I wanted to know. And I went looking for a tool that would help me to kind of keep track of them and measure stuff and help me understand myself better and really close the feedback loop between my effort and the eventual outcome. And so I could learn faster. And there wasn't really anything out there like that. And, um, you know, I, I eventually was like, well, maybe I'll just build something for myself to use internally at Farnham Street just to like kind of create an edge, honestly. And after working on it, I, I realized, man, this, is, this might be helpful for other investors too. Uh, and I probably shouldn't be so selfish and try to just keep it in my own shop. Uh, and uh, maybe there's some actually a commercial application to this where uh, you know, other people would, would get so much value from it that, that there could be a software that we could provide. So um, that's when Jurlit was born. And uh, you know, it would have it would have died on the vine a long time ago if not for my two other amazing co-founders who have, are you know better than me in like a million different ways that really helps to to keep that boat running. Uh, but now we've got uh, so, you know a handful of employees working on it, and uh, we just launched in November an open version of it. Finally, we've been running a, a closed version for a while to to really like figure out okay, what do people want us to build for them? Uh, what can we add? Uh, but yeah, it's it's been launched and uh, been pretty popular, uh, kind of surprisingly popular, actually, uh, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, we're off to the races. And I think we're going to build a lot more cool stuff for people. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of get the word out because I think we're going to help a lot of people. Yeah, that's awesome. So actually, like, uh, that was kind of the catalyst for our conversation today, even though I've been meaning to have you on for a long time. So I wanted, I wanted to show you something and okay. ask you. So like this, this is a Word document. Okay. <laughs> this I used to have where I... Uh, yeah, I used to keep like Word documents of every single like investment I did because I didn't know a better way to keep track of everything, right? So like, like I've owned PayPal like almost since it was spun off from eBay. And like, so I keep track of the revenues and the EPS and like, and then like every, every trailing 12 months period, you know, I would do like the, the revenue and the revenue growth year over yeah. year and the EPS growth. And then I like under that, it was like the, the, like the key performance metrics from that quarter and then like all the, the KPIs and the historical track records, you know, and I was just like, but I had to do a Word document for this every time. And it was like, yeah. it's, it, it, it was really tedious, you know, and if you have, you know, 25 positions, you know, earnings week, I was trying to write like articles on companies, update these Word documents and, and everything like that. And, uh, and then like, so, and I, like, so these are just like historical track records. So like the, um, so like I would have the PE ratio for every quarter, you know, when it reported earnings, you know, and, and things yeah. like that. And then like, if you scroll way down, like, and it's so unorganized, but it, it kind of made sense in my own head, but like, uh, but I just didn't know a better way to do it. I had conference call notes and like, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and things from it. And so like, yeah, why don't you like, so let's talk about journalytics because I'm, I'm very interested in this, you know? And so like, I, I kind of, eventually I stopped with the word documents, like, so they're not up to date anymore, just because like, one, I write so much, I just kind of started using my own articles as like, like going back to like, okay, this is what I was thinking when yeah. PayPal reported a couple. You're kind of real-time uh, journaling as it is with your articles. Right. But like, but like for a long, long time, I was doing it in word documents and it was unorganized. It was tedious. So yeah, like, let's, let's talk about journalytics because I, I'm interested in this. Like, uh, you know, I don't think I'll be writing forever and I want something to keep track of my investments. You cut, you touched on a couple things there that, that resonated with me. Uh, the first one was just getting organized and that was a big part of it. Like I also had notes all over the place and I was more of a physical note taker. So I'd have yellow scratch pads 
all over the office. And when right. I we wanted to go find a note, it was almost impossible to know where I put it, uh, which was kind of drove me crazy. And I knew it was slowing me down and, and I was just less efficient. And I probably wasn't connecting dots between my notes because they were living in separate lo- locations. Um, So now having it all in one place, one repository lets me search across and lets me put in like tags. So like, you know, being able to hit like hashtag and then something, whatever it is, like a, um, like, you know, cap allocation, for instance, um, or, uh, you know, red flags or green flags. Like there's a million different ways to use tagging to kind of organize your thoughts. And then to be able to just click on any of those tags and see every single time that I use that and then connect, you know, ideas between tags. Um, it's really powerful. Uh, the second thing that you mentioned uh, was that, you know, I want to be doing this for a really long time. And something I've, you know, I'm, I'm, we're probably going to like, I'm going to foreshadow a little bit of our conversation with talking about Berkshire, but, yeah. you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of Warren and Charlie, obviously, and listening to their, I've listened to their, the annual meetings that are available um, online or in, and on podcasts. Uh, I think they started in 1994 and then they go forward. And I've listened to them. Uh, I'm not going to say how many times because it's a lot, but uh, it's 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 like my and you know I do it pretty much daily. I'll listen to some of it, and what I noticed, you know, from the ninety ninety four to today is just they're they're just as sharp, like they're just as smart, but they're slower. And what I what it, it actually I did was it scared me a little bit about like if I want to be doing this when I'm you know eighty years old. God, wouldn't it be nice if I had this accumulated second external brain that I could lean on? If I could use technology actually to enable myself to age gracefully and I'd put in that work, which I was going to be doing anyway, right? Like I'm going to be taking these notes. Why not do it in a way that will give me benefits increasingly as I get older? It'll become more and more powerful as I I age. Um, And so I just feel like I'm getting a much higher return on investment over a longer duration for my efforts of note taking. Yeah, I think this is like uh or like I don't know. Like I feel like this is important for individual investors because one like right now like your your service is free, right? There there's 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 no mm-hmm. charge and like there like uh like being a retail investor, like uh you know tools like this are are often very lacking. Like you know um like Motley Fool used to have something where like you could say up or down on a stock and then like write a quick reason for why it was going and then it would track that one time decision against the S&P 500, you know, mm-hmm. but there's no way to like add to a position. There's no way to do anything beyond that, like add to a position or draw down or trim or, or whatever. It was just up or down at one point in time. And you could never do that company again, unless you like sold the original position or closed it out or something. But like, yeah, so there's, there's often, there's so many limitations to like these types of things. So like, uh, like I'm, I'm very interested in this tool. Like um, what, and, and you know, like your, your image of like being 80, you know, and just like, I, I imagine you like being an old man and like you have like 80 million yellow legal pads yeah. around the office trying to find something you wrote like years ago or something like that. Uh, leveraging technology is certainly like something like that's lacking in this area. Yeah. And you know, where I think what, what makes it us journalistic special is that um, all the other note-taking apps right now that people use, they start with a very general purpose note-taking, and then people have kind of shoehorned them into, okay, here's how I can try to use my investment process into that. Like Just like your Word doc that you just showed. I mean, that's that was uh, probably not the ideal 
you know, interface no. and, yeah, right, you know, right. it was not, it was not, No, it's a little cumbersome. Right. right? And that's, right. it's just an, an artifact that no one had built anything that we started from the investment process and then work towards, okay, what can we do to make it easier to accomplish all these things that you want to get done? So you, you don't have to shoehorn as much in, and then it just lowers the frictional cost of recording all this stuff. And that's really at the end of the day, like creating these data about your process so that you can understand yourself is the key to learning. And that's, that's what we're trying to make it easier for everyone to, to be able to learn about themselves. And I just feel like so many individual investors like make impulsive decisions and then they have, or not even impulsive, but like they, they make a, you know, they, they make a purchase or they buy a stock for a reason, but they don't write that down. They don't keep track of it. And then a year later, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's down 5% and the market's up 10%. And you're like, why did I buy this piece of junk? And, you know, and you don't, you don't review why you bought it, you know, they maybe make an impulsive sell decision, actually, you know, like usually the buy decisions are, in, in my, uh, in my experience are, are more uh, reasoned than sell decisions, because you can get so yeah. emotional about a position where you're like, uh, you, you know, you're frustrated in the moment, you never review the bull case, and you just sell it, you know, it's so easy now to sell a position. So something like this is, it's definitely can be very handy for that. I, I think you're 100% right that you're, we live in an amazing time where uh, the ability to buy or sell a piece of a business and the, the liquidity that's available and the ease of transaction is this incredible tool that you could build wealth and own businesses. I mean, put yourself back into the 1800s, let's say, and there was a, you know, Commodore Vanderbilt is sailing his ships and, right. you know, like, <laughs> and you see that his business is going well. And you want to participate in that somehow. You'd love to be an owner, but there's no mechanism in which to change ownership. But now today, it's so easy. You can do it on your phone in two seconds, right? I mean, it's it's amazing. Well, this is like any tool, like, you know, a scalpel can be used to perform life-saving surgery, but it can also be used to, you know, disfigure someone if right. we're, I mean, sure. just if we're sure. going to be uh, gross. Um, so, but it's the same tool. And and we have the same issue now with, I think, the ability to transact is that it can be this amazing life-saving tool. But if you're not careful with it, you can really hurt yourself as well. And so we, we just have to be very mindful of these things and, and recognize that our psychological wetware, our brains evolve for a much different environment in, compared to what we're operating in. And that your impulses are often probably going to be dangerous to your wealth and that we just have to take measures to control them. And you know, one of the, even for professionals, uh, I think it's kind of, uh, uh, I think it's okay to say this. Professionals will have read a lot about the behavioral biases. They'll read Kahneman and Tversky. They'll read Phil Tetlock. They'll, they'll read Annie Duke. They'll read Michael Mobison. And that's great. It's a good start. But just because you've read about it doesn't actually mean that you are taking steps to neutralize some of those behavioral biases. And that's a lot of what the software that we're working on is trying to help people to recognize those biases and then counteract them. So building it into the architecture to, sl to slow down some of these uh, you know, system one versus system two thinking that, that Kahneman talks about. I mean, this is, it's, uh, I think we're, we're going to be really helping a lot of people in, when it comes to just making better decisions at the end of the day. And, and that's really what this game is all about is I think whoever makes the best decisions is the one who's going to end up winning. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And it is, you know, I mean, your, your example about Commodore Vanderbilt is great, right? But it's not even, you don't have to go nearly that far back. I mean, you can go back to the 
the 70s or 80s and you know our, our fathers you know they wanted to buy a position they had to buy a hundred stocks of it like right around a lot of it and yeah, then the commission fee was a hundred dollars and you had to go into the office so it was only after you saved a good bit of money like you wanted to buy a hundred shares of coca-cola or hundred shares of mcdonald's like you, you know you you saved up for that position for a long time you 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 considered it you had to consider it and the commission fee was so expensive you know, in the process, like going into the office and making the order or, or calling up online and paying like a, even a higher fee, like that was, it, it was, it was, it created enough friction where you, you had to consider it, right? You had to. Yeah. And, uh, and now, like you said, I mean, it's just, it's so, in, so incredibly easy. I mean, you can get like pop-up notifications on your phone that you're, you know, a stock is down 5% that you own. And, and you know, that like, you know, like uh, you're, it just allows your emotions to just almost like take off right and, and overwhelm your your reasoning ability yeah i mean confetti shooting up uh you know in your <laughs> oh, yeah, face yeah when you yeah, i mean yeah yeah. These are, yeah 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 or you go are, on twitter and everybody's bashing you know whatever it is you have a position in google and uh google's about to be disrupted from this you know or, or that or it's too expensive and you know you just start uh it, it can get uh it can get overwhelming at times i think you're exactly right matt i mean the the there's an absolute flood of information that, especially in the last, you know, I mean, 20 years with the internet, but even more so, I mean, it just keeps getting bigger. Uh, yeah. And that is, is amazing in that you have access to all of these data, all this information, and it, you know, a lot of it's free. And that is like, it's a, I think it's a boon to, to civilization to have that much information around and sharing. And, you know, in, in more mundane context, I'm thinking about like, you know, the other day I was like, oh, my, like a little part of my fridge was broken. And I'm like, oh, I don't really know how to fix that. I go on YouTube and like, it's my fridge and there's a guy fixing it and he's showing me how to do it step by step. And it's, it's like, that's amazing. It but, is amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it also leads to, uh, you can find data to support any harebrain idea that you have, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, if you search hard enough, uh, like right. our, the ability to confirm your biases has never been easier and larger. Um, so you, I think we just have to be very careful about these new tools that are, that we're, we're operating in. Uh, for sure. So like, before we move on, like, uh, if people should check out this tool, like usually at the end, like I asked, you know, where mm. are you, but like, let's, while we're talking about it, if people want to check this out, where, where, where do they go? Yeah. If you just go to journalytic.com, um, you should probably be able to find it on a search engine at this point. Yeah, uh, I, was, I mean, it was, I think it was the first result for me yeah. when, I, when I searched for it. And, uh, you know, it is like, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just getting started with it. Like I've signed up and uh, like just kind of fooling around with it, but it, it, it does seem to be like a great tool. If you're, uh, you know, I think most of our listeners are individual investors, retail investors. And uh, if you're listening to this, like I would strongly urge you to check it out. Uh, I think it's a great tool. There's no fee uh, and just, you know, play around with it and uh, and see if it does help you organize your, like, it's almost like an investment journal, I guess. Is that a good way to put it? It is. Yeah. It's a journal. It's journaling based. Um, a little bit of a funny story on that. We I, we built an original version of this before it came out and it was very process oriented. It was, okay, you know, the new idea comes in, here's what you should do. Think about this. And then, okay, right before you're ready to buy, here are things to think about. And then, oh, you, you know, you sold it. Here's a, you know, here's run this postmortem. And we brought people in to look at it and like, it didn't register at all. They're like, well, this isn't my process. This isn't how I do it. Mm, right. I've discovered how idiosyncratic the investment process is across the spectrum. Sure, and it was sure. very humbling for me uh, because I thought I was presenting like, this is like 
the golden path. Like, here's a, an amazing way to do this. I'll tell you how to do it right, guys. Yeah, it didn't resonate at all. So right. we had to actually strip back. We started over and we discovered that journaling as the interface with the brain was the the magic ticket to, to help people. And now a lot of those same structures that were on a track before, you can choose your own adventure and, and pop them up within and and get the same results, get the same uh you know, accomplish the same thing, but you can do it on your own kind of timeline and when you want to do it. So um, my recommendation would be once you get in there and create an account, just go and record one feeling about a uh, any investment that you're you've been thinking about. And what you know, I, I chose feeling because there's going to you're going to be having a feeling no matter what at some point about some whatever you've been thinking about and record that feeling and then go navigate to that uh, company ticker and look at that. And you'll see that we will have overlaid that feeling onto a price chart. And what that's going to show you over time, if you keep recording your feelings, you record your decisions, you record your notes on it, those will start to be overlaid on that price chart. And you can see how your experience of ownership, of thinking about a, of an investment, how that's been changing over time, and also how price has been dictating how you feel about it, which is, I think, what a lot of us will discover. I know I've discovered this. Um, you know, price, nothing changes sentiment like price. Price drives sentiment. Like, you, you want to tell yourself that's not what drives your sentiment, but 100% for me, it does. And I have to, like, fight that so much uh, yeah i have the same problem and i found that overlaying it on a price chart and letting me see that oh i you know uh, why this is so important is that the next set of numbers about that company are going to come out and if you if the price has been going down you're going to look at all those numbers with a negative lens and you're going to be like oh i see all the problems now well that is the exact opportunity because everyone is feeling that way right. and, and if you could take that lens off and just look at the numbers in a clean way you might find an insight that no one else is that, and that's where this, you know, I mean, that's what alpha is like, that's where winning is, is having a contrarian opinion and being right about it. And so the closer that you can get to reality and not have those biases that price is generating for you, the, the better off you're going to be. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the beyond the box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you, you wrote a book called The Rebel Allocator, I don't know, a few years ago? Yeah, it came um, out in 2019. Okay, so a couple of summer go. Uh, a couple of summers ago, we were on a family road trip and uh, I had the audiobook version of your book on and uh, it, it, it wrapped just enough fiction in it to keep my wife like saying like, okay, we can listen to this because I couldn't normally like <laughs> listen to an investment book. Yeah, so I appreciated that aspect. But basically, like, you know, you have like you've, you've wrapped investment lessons in this like fictional story of like the, a young adult, uh, like as he graduates college and he he meets this like um uh, mogul like uh like similar to how you met warren buffett yeah <laughs> you know oddly uh -huh. enough and uh like who like this fast food mogul who takes him under his wing and teaches him like secrets to his business success and meanwhile the protagonist he falls in love gets a promotion at work and just generally matures in his worldview as he learns about life 
what, so what was the inspiration for this story? What made you think to incorporate investing lessons into a, a fictional story? Well, first of all, that was an amazing synopsis of it. Like I, I should probably steal that and put it on the back of the book. I think it's better than what's on there right now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so what, there were several things that I was hoping to accomplish with the book. And, you know, the first was um, I recognized like, gosh, I would go and study these companies and I'd look at the cash flow statement and I would say like, why are these, I know these people are smart who are running these companies. Why do they make these kind of boneheaded decisions regularly when it comes to capital allocation and managing their business? And I, I realized, okay, it's probably that they are mostly trying to follow the herd to not get in trouble, basically. Like that's, you know, it's that institutional imperative that that is often comes up. And what I was hoping was that if I could provide a set of tools and a way to think, and really it's not me, like I'm basically just taking a lot of Buffett and Munger's ideas about this and, and some other people and mixing them together into sort of a best practice and, and trying to build up from the starting layer of like the individual unit economics and customer interaction and working my way all the way up to corporate finance of you know buybacks and dividends and how should you think through that and provide a framework that then business leaders could use to, to at least have the confidence to think for themselves. That's what I did at the end of the day was just, just think for yourself and do what you think is right and don't just follow the herd. And if there were enough people who were inspired by that, I felt like that would be a pretty good contribution. Now, the other thing I was hoping to accomplish was you know, around that time and probably still today, I felt like there was a little bit of an underappreciation for the everyday miracles that capitalism provides for us. I mean, it, growing the pie for everyone and like we've just like humanity has never seen this kind of ease of life that we have. And, and it's better all the time. And, you know, it's better around the world. It's obviously very amazing in the United States to be born here, but around the world, it's getting better. And it, a lot of that is due to capitalism and the harnessing human creativity and energy in a way that actually makes the pie bigger for everybody. And, you know, that I, I think that that's such a powerful force. Like I wanted to highlight that. And so I chose a younger protagonist uh, so that one, he had a lot to learn, which is nice. Um, he can travel the furthest arc to kind of grow. Right. And two, um, you know, he can hopefully experience and see like, wow, there's all these little everyday miracles that are happening due to capitalism and and have a better appreciation for that. And, you know, hopefully maybe some, a young person might read this book and be like, huh, you know, I kind of never thought about it that way. And I, it, it's a little more nuanced than I thought, at least. Um, so that was what I was hoping to accomplish with all of this. Um, and, you know, it's, I probably was trying to stick too much, uh, you know, 10 pounds of, of manure into a five pound sack uh, by, you know, serving multiple stories. But, sure. um, but yeah, I, I uh, and why was it a story? Like I, I actually sat down to write a book that was nonfiction originally about cap allocation and, uh, you know, tell like business stories within it. Like you would like a, you know, Malcolm Gladwell or something. Right. Sure. Um, uh, I, I, I got a book offer like from a publisher to do it. And, uh, it, I started working on it and it was, it was going to be so dry and so boring. A and book about capital allocation. It's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. So, and you know what else it was like, I felt like there, there were all these nudges at that time telling me like, gosh, you have to tell a story if you want it to resonate and you want it to stick. If you want people to remember what you're telling them, it has to be in a story. That's just how the human brain is wired. So I, went back to the drawing board and I actually, um, I thought like, gosh, how, 
who tells good stories? Like, I don't even know how to tell a good story. And so I actually read a couple books on screenplay writing. And it was like, so I actually, like, I mocked it out as if it was a movie. And I went, like, beat by beat, scene by scene, and had that all laid out. And then I laid the lessons within those scenes. And I basically, like, it's basically Karate Kid, but with, you know, Mr. Miyagi is now, like, a Warren Buffett character. Uh, And that's... It, it, like it's almost identical to that like that's the secret of the, the story um so that's that's the that was how the rebel allocator came about and um i was there's like this saying that everyone wants to have written a book but no one actually wants to write a book and i found that to be very true it's, it's a painful process <laughs> but you're yeah. very happy when it's done sure sure i can imagine i can imagine now like something you said is is interesting like you you said like and, and you're right like i mean telling a story is a great way to uh like get your lessons across now so in this book and on the on your podcast valued after hours as a as a co-host you will serve veggies right mm-hmm. and so like that's kind of like you take this uh the non-investment lesson and it can be about like very diverse <laughs> like uh topics from from whales to to sure. the burrito principle to biological baggage to like pine cone strategies i mean you always have like a uh to skiing or baseball you know you always have like like non-investment lessons and then you try to like tie it back to like things how you can apply it to investing uh like what 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 draws you i guess to 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 the to to that model because obviously you used it a lot in the book and you used it a lot on the podcast. I mean that's what you're known for. I mean I think like you know I, I think that's why they have you on right to like <laughs> like to bring the veggies every week. So that, but like uh uh like why are you drawn to that? Yeah, it's certainly not uh not invited for my radio voice. Uh, but <laughs> uh, you know what? It, it, there's a common theme throughout all of my projects that I work on, and um. It's a they're forcing functions for me to learn. And so, you know, go back to we didn't talk about it, but I actually I taught a class once I had graduated at, at UC Davis on value investing for four years. And that class was an amazing forcing function to learn, like force myself to have to do the work to show up every week with something smart to say, with like, you know, discerning smart students who are gonna call me out uh, and like challenge me amazing learning experience for me, maybe not for them. Uh, they paid money to be there. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably the one who walked away with the education. Uh, but so I'm forcing myself there, like writing the book was a bit of a forcing function of just like deep, deep dive into cap allocation and how could like strip it down to the very basic nuts and bolts and then build it back up in, in how I can understand it. Uh, you know, journalytic is a, is an exercise in a forcing function of if I could have a magic wand to try to make some, you know, a, a totally brand new first principles way of doing the investment process and force myself to understand it at a atomic level. Okay. Like this is a good way to do that. Uh, you know, and value after hours for me serves that function of, I, I read very widely and I, you know, I always had, but when I know that I have to deliver a little talk about it, you know, even, you know, five to 10 minutes in a segment, I'm just, I'm reading with a lot deeper level, like seeking to understand it at a deeper level. And, uh, and it's, it forces me to just be more engaged with the things that I'm reading because I know I might write it up later and, and give a talk about it. So uh, they're all actually secretly self-serving in that, like, I just want these forcing functions to keep me working hard on things. Otherwise I will just be so lazy and I'll, you know, I won't take any notes. I won't, <laughs> I'll just like sure. drift through. Yeah, so right, right. 
uh, it's far, the same as way far as the writing, like, like, yeah. when, you know, if I have to write about something, like I have to know it because, uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't coast your way through that. No. And like you, I really, I don't know what I think about a topic until I have to write about it. And, and the, the writing about it is what, how I discover what I actually believe about something. Uh, it's how you think. It's, it's like, it's like my thought process. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's one way and then I'll have to go write about it. And I realize, oh my God, I'm actually the, like, opposite like this is i was my first version was the exact 180 degrees out of phase right right so uh so look like i've listened to you a lot um i've listened to your book but i still feel like when it comes to your investment philosophy i, I know you lean towards value but that's really all i can say it's almost like <laughs> i know more about what you don't like than what you do like so how would you describe your investment philosophy what do you look for when you look for an investment? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad you picked up on that because I I actually um, I try not to talk much about individual names in public, and I try not to. I, I would rather try to provide teach someone how to fish rather than give them a fish. And I know no one wants that. Like everyone wants just like give me the <laughs> give me this winner that's going right, to right, compound right, right, it. Right. You sure. know, twenty percent for twenty years. I don't have to. I can go to the beach. <laughs> Um, oh, Jake, come on. I know. And I get it. Like, listen, I want that same thing, but um, I, that's not repeatable for someone. And, and here's the problem with that is that I could tell you an idea, but I can't give you my conviction around it. The conviction comes from doing the work on the name and when, and your conviction will a hundred percent be tested by Mr. Market at some point. And this is where the psychology is the real advantage of investing. Like, and so I, if I tell you the name and you don't have the conviction, you will be spooked out of it at some point, and it will probably be at the worst time to sell. And I will have done you no favors at that point. You, you like I will have hurt you. You can't borrow conviction. You can't, you can't borrow, borrow conviction. conviction. Yep. No. So that, that's why I don't speak much publicly about individual names. And also it's actually for my protecting myself from confirmation bias. You know, if I talk about a name in public, and now like, oh, he's associated with that name. And now I have to sort of live up to that. And, you know, my, my, I think it clouds my thinking about that name if I am publicly committed to it. So that's, that's a large reason why I don't. Um, so, but, so what does that mean then? Like I, I will, I'll describe in a little bit more detail, like how I approach it. Yeah. Uh, uh, number one, I think that the investment, uh, the market in general is actually crazy efficient. I think most of the time, the price of the security is very, very close to probably what its intrinsic value is. You know, it's a, up, it's too high a little bit, it's too low a little bit, but th there aren't huge spreads most of the time, I believe. Um, and that's, you know, that's a testament to how much good work gets done by individuals. Like these are very, very smart people uh, coordinating unknowingly often in a market to figure out and reveal what the right price is. Like I think efficiency is actually quite strong. Um, I'm not like in the full, but it's not fully efficient. And there's a night and day difference between those two things. Okay. If the market was a hundred percent strong efficiency, you would, it would tell you then that there's no point in trying to understand any of these companies and that you should probably just index and go do something else. I don't believe that to be the case. And in fact, I think every once in a while, there are these huge disconnects in a company that are just so blindingly obvious that if you could be patient and wait for them that that you and take advantage of them and have the conviction to do it that you can do really well and you actually don't have to be a, a super amazing analyst um and this just means like you have to stay within the things that you understand so that you can recognize when that disconnect is real 
And you have to have that that mental fortitude to be able to go against the grain because that's usually what's happening is that everyone hates it for some reason. And you, through some you know insight of your learning, you understand why that that is not the case and that it's actually like um, it's better than everyone thinks, or maybe it's just not quite as bad as everyone thinks. That's often what happens. Um, so. So I am basically, I would describe my investment style as opportunistic. And most of the time, there's nothing for me to do. There's very little happening. Uh, and I'm just reading about businesses. I'm trying to figure out what they're worth. And most of the time, they're pretty close to what they're priced at. Um, and in fact, most of the time, they're like a little bit more expensive than what I would say is a reasonable sure. price. Uh, well, it's never cheap that, enough, right? It's never well, could be a little bit of recency bias happening there because just, you know, we've had relatively expensive markets for quite a while. If you look at, um, there've been lots of other times in history where markets have been less favored. Uh, and that's, that's just sure. the nature of things. Um, lower interest rates will do that. Uh, high, high returns on equity that, that corporate America has experienced will do that. Um, so, <clears throat> so I'm basically just looking for very, very simple, obvious ideas that pop up occasionally and taking advantage of them. And, but most of the time there's nothing happening and it's very boring. It doesn't fit into morning, any Morningstar style box. Um, I, you know, large, small, I don't care. It's just what is to me seems like an obvious disconnect on the value of a company based on what I think it could be, you know, worth in a year or two, three, and what is it trading at today? And, uh, recognizing that I'm probably, you know, it's probably going to get cheaper on me when I buy it and that's okay. Like that's just a natural, thing that happens. And I'm probably going to sell a little bit early uh, because, you know, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that there's a certain amount of gain that I'm entitled to just based on my understanding of it. But then once it gets above a certain point, now I'm starting to be much more speculative and I'm, I'm going against what I understand. And like, I don't deserve those gains above that. So if I sell at some point and it, it continues to run up, that's okay. Like that was, I don't deserve those gains that, that were above that. And I, I deserve the ones that were from the lower level to that level, but I don't, I don't deserve the ones above. Um, so it's almost so, like when a company below its intrinsic value, uh, you know, you're, you're comfortable buying it with a margin, certain margin of safety, but once it gets within that margin of safety, that's when you, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, but like, this is my maybe interpretation of what you're saying. Once it gets within that margin of safety, that's when you're like, okay, time for me to let it go. And whatever it does beyond this point, it is what it is. I was definitely of that mind early on in my career. Um, and always try to trade up into the next thing that was further dislocated. Uh, that (laughs) unfortunately around 2017, that led me to uh, selling a lot of my portfolio and not being able to find as many replacement things that I thought were cheap. And all of a sudden you end up with a large cash balance that you didn't really intend. And okay, well now what do you do? Like, are you going to go buy back those things that are higher than what you sold them for? That's really mentally difficult to do. Um, and you ended up kind of like, I got myself boxed into a corner in a way, uh, because I was trying to be disciplined. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit more, uh, especially on a company that I feel like I know well and that is, uh, I think, has long-term reasonably good prospects. I am a little, I try to drag my feet on selling in those kind of situations. And, uh, you know, like it's it's a little bit like what Ben Franklin said about marriage, that you should have your eyes wide open going in and then have your eyes a little bit closed once you're there. Um, so, or as another friend of mine says it, like he tries to be a value buyer and a growth holder. Uh, so okay. let okay. things grow a little bit and maybe ignore a, a more expensive valuation and not let that force you out necessarily. I mean, 
don't test me on that, right? Like if it gets too egregious, sure. Uh, sure, sure. I, you know, I, I'm I'm very likely to to sin in that direction. But uh, but that's that's where my style has kind of gone more to these days. Is you know, if if I feel like you know what the ideal scenario is, is that I buy it cheap, it stays relatively it's cheap, cheap. <laughs> but it just... and the and the underlying business, the right. returns on equity yeah. of the business compound in such a way that that Mr. Market never forces my hand to sell. And that it, I just enjoy the ownership of the business on an upward return on equity path. And I don't have to be cute on my buying and selling. Like that's ideal. Right. It's it, sure, that's what course. I'm actually aiming for, but you don't always get what you want. Sure, sure, of course. So so let me uh if I can try to clarify this. So you said a lot a lot of times you're not doing anything, you're opportunistic. So when you're not doing anything. Are you holding these types of like companies you're more comfortable with, like uh, that you know well, that you believe have good long-term prospects, or are you like sitting in cash more? Like what what yeah. is like these long periods of not doing anything look like? Uh, the answer is like all of the above. Um, okay. The holding ones, I tend to actually gravitate towards cap allocators. So I, I try to find cap allocation talent in the C-suite and then back those people by being an owner of that business. And of course, you know, you can't overpay for their talents. Um, and, you know, the, the, they're, it's, a, it's kind of a multivariate problem in that there's like, how much am I paying for their talent? How talented do I think they, they are? How big of a universe do they have to work within? So, you know, think about Berkshire, for instance, all-time great capital allocator, like this is as good as it gets. Um, doesn't get any better. Doesn't get any better, but the universe for them is relatively small. So that's you know that's a, a a constraining factor. And then you also have you know the price of it at different points. You know it's Berkshire is a a pretty easy buy at lower price to book levels, and it gets a little bit harder to buy it. You know when you're up above one point five, one point six, maybe price to book, and that's kind of where we are today. But um, and. <laughs> I think it's sort of revealed actually, like in Buffett's buybacks, like he's, he's probably not doing a lot of buybacks today at today's prices. Uh, we'll see soon, but um, anyway, like, so looking for good cap allocators and really I think about it to go back to that ability to like, you know, Commodore Vanderbilt that we were talking about earlier, I can, I can outsource a percentage of my empire to people who I can recognize are very talented at this. And I, I like, I let them run part of my empire. Like, so Buffett runs some of my empire, uh, you know, Prem Watsa at Fairfax runs a little piece of my empire. And that's how I think about it. Like I, I'm, I put these guys in charge and they're making their own decisions as to what they're going to allocate capital to, how much cash levels are they going to have? Uh, and I, you know, I have that decision at the upper level of how much do I want to allocate to them and how much cash do I want to carry? Uh, but like some of that, I like diluting my own decision-making into them and letting them decide also, when do they think it's a good time to be buying things? Okay. So th that makes sense. I, I like how you put that. Uh, is is Berkshire a good investment today? Well, again, I should caveat that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not cheap. It's also not very expensive. It's kind of the right price right now. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, if you want to just, I would say as a, just buy it and hold it for a very long period of time, I think you will do just fine. Um, you know, Berkshire has within it right now, these, a few magical engines that they have the ability to, to, to put back in large sums of money and it will then turn into bigger sums later. And so let's be more concrete. Their insurance operations are world-class and they are typically aiming for 
about a you know a ninety percent combined ratio. So let's that implies about a you know ten percent profit margin. Their Berkshire Energy is a world class utility. They're, they are structured to get roughly 10% return on equity, return on invested capital of their regulatory assets. So they go build a, a, a windmill a, or a solar panel, and they are going to get roughly 10% return on their, their investment in that, that infrastructure, just based on the regulatory environment with the, you know, their, their deal with the US government is we'll build these things and this is the return they'll get. Their railroad is going to also get a roughly eight to 10% return on its laid out capital. And all three of those things have huge appetites for capital. So they'll be able to put tons of money into this and get 10% return. Their investment portfolio, they're typically buying with a probably about a 10% return uh, projection on, you know, the whole basket of securities that they own. So I don't know if you noticed, but I said 10% like four different times. They have all of these different places where they can put money in. So I would, as the owner, expect to earn what the capital is earning, which is probably going to be in the 10%-ish neighborhood if I had to look over a long period of time. Um, And of course, you could do a little bit better if you're buying that 10% yield at a cheaper price, and you'll probably do a little worse than that if you're buying it at the more expensive end. So just keep that in mind as you as you look at Berkshire almost as a 10% bond, that's that's one way to think about it. Like it's it's not a bond, it's an equity, but they're, the certainty of the payment and, and the growth and the, the 10% return is damn near bond-like in my opinion. How, how should investors think of Berkshire? Like, is it more Geico or Apple? Is it more Railroad or Dairy Queen? Like how, like I, like how, how should investors like, wrap their head around so many diverse holdings. I mean, one way to think about it is that it's a, I think a little bit of a supercharged S&P 500 because it's so US centric. Um, and it's, and the capital allocation is what creates that that supercharging. And actually the, the leverage from the float of the insurance business adds a, a fair amount of juice to the, to the, uh, the returns. Um, I saw one study that, and it, this is kind of old now, so I'm sure it's decayed and it's not as good because they've just gotten bigger. Uh, right. But at one point, I think you know it, they were compounding book value in the 23% Kager, uh, you know, neighborhood, and I think like 10% of that had come from just the the leverage that the the float of owning owning assets within the insurance company adding to the earnings of the business was generating an extra 10% over and above the the other 13% that they were getting from kind of more traditional business operations. So um, it's it's obviously harder to do that when you get bigger sums of money and the, the, it will not compound anywhere near the growth rates of the previous, you know, 50 years that it's done. It's just too sure, big to do that. Sure, of course, uh, but, of course. but when it comes to corporate governance, when it comes to treating shareholders like partners in a business, when it comes to stellar capital allocation, uh, when it comes to uh, being a clean shirt in the in in a relatively dirty shirt world, when it comes to principal agent problems from management, you know, not treating shareholders correctly, um, this is about as good as it gets. It's a gold standard in public markets, and you know, I I would aspire for all of the businesses that I own to have be run with the ethos that that Berkshire's run with. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously no secret. I mean, Buffett, I mean, look, one of the greatest capital allocators of all time, one of the greatest investors, no question. 
um charlie munger too i mean just fantastic but like they're obviously uh you know they're they're not going to be around forever right sure to to put it mildly (laughs) i think so i mean charlie just turned 99 uh a couple weeks ago right buffett's 99 he'll be 93 this year yeah i think 93 too so Uh, these are these aren't these aren't young chickens here right Uh, so so how does how does this company look when they're gone well i mean time will tell but it the i believe that the culture of of berkshire and what these guys have built and the decentralized nature of the operations make it a much less fragile to a single person you know being a key man that that would bring the whole thing down if they were to, to not be around um Granted, whoever is next in line and the person after them will never be as good as Buffett when it comes to capital allocation, when it comes to probably uh, getting sweetheart deals on private businesses. Berkshire is the buyer of some businesses where they are the only buyer who could ever get that business just because of reputation. There are some business owners who would who will not sell to anyone except to Berkshire. And that is a, a huge advantage um, when it, when you're a single bidder in any uh, you know type of operation. What an advantage that will likely dissipate because you're just you know and and also you know if you're if you're running a business you founded it let's say or maybe you're like third or fourth generation and you're deciding okay I want to sell my business uh, be, my kids don't want to run it like there's lots of reasons why you might want to sell a business. It's really hard to get that person who's already very wealthy, by the way, by building that business to one, sell and then keep working hard. Like, why would they want to keep showing up every day and grinding? And Buffett has been able to inspire these already wealthy people to sell him his their business and then keep working as hard as they were before. Right, right. I think it's really hard to expect that of the next generation of Berkshire to get that same kind of loyalty, that same sort of gosh, I want to like kill it because I want to impress Warren Buffett. Uh, that's, that's, that's very unlikely. But the decentralized operations, the, the ability to deploy capital, the gold standard of, of corporate ethos and uh, you know treating shareholders right, I think all of that stuff stays intact. And I think it's still going to be an amazing place for quite a bit longer than I think what you might expect uh, or the, the, the traditional person might expect. Sure. So let me ask you, let me ask you another question because you, I know you've studied Buffett and you, uh, I, I believe, I, I don't know this, but you've probably been an investor in Berkshire for a, a long time. Uh, what, if, if, if somebody wanted to study like one investment decision Buffett made that just like mm. really like uh, to, to really learn, like, uh, I guess like a lot of the investment lessons he's given in his letters over the years, but what was like one that really sticks out where you're like, this is like the perfect example of a good Buffett investment. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Tobias Carlyle has talked about how his uh, Buffett's investment in Apple just a few years ago was in pure dollar amounts was one of the greatest investments of all time, you know, but like, yeah. what, what would you point to if somebody wanted to learn more about Buffett? And obviously, look, obviously, if you have not read Buffett's letters, go and read Buffett's letters. You know, there, there's some great books uh, on Buffett, but like, if there was like a, a single investment or, or something like what that really encapsulates his thought process, how what would you say? I would probably rewind the tape much further back and go and point to actually like the Seas Candy purchase uh, for a number of reasons. And uh, what number one, it showed a willingness to to learn and grow, and I think that's like 
been the ticket. And when and you, when was when, when did they do that? Do you know? Uh, like, 1972, I believe. Okay. All right. They, so, they paid they paid 25 million dollars uh, for C's candy. And before that, Buffett had been just buying what he called these cigar butts. Like they were net nets, networking capital, very, very cheap, but not very good businesses. And, you know, typically he was trying to either liquidate them or get the price to run up before the company had to liquidate itself, right? Like he's buying it for literally the inventory in the business. Um, So, and he was doing very well with that, right? And it would have been super easy for him to just keep doing what he was doing, but he recognized that he was going to run up against constraints of capacity for that strategy. Like you just couldn't get big because there just weren't that many of those around and they're even less today, but I mean, back then there were uh, at least some, like he could have conned for quite a bit longer, but he recognized through the help of both Phil Fisher and probably more Charlie Munger, that if you can buy a great business, then time is very much your friend. So imagine that he, he paid $25 million in 1972. And at this point, I think the, the amount of cash that has been sent to him from the ownership of this business is in the neighborhood of $2 billion. That's so, pretty good. I mean, it's decent. decent. It's okay, right? Yeah, like, uh, right. So if you can have one seize candy in your life uh, and you find it and you hold on, boy, what an amazing thing. The other part of it that is that I think it was he he bought a private business at this with this point. Like, so he owned the entirety of it. And right. that was a, a bit of a he had already done that with National Indemnity, with a, the insurance company that really started insurance operations within Berkshire. But this was kind of the first, uh, you know, more publicly facing kind of business that he owned privately. And that that uh, trajectory really changed how Berkshire, like to be able to own both public and private businesses within Berkshire, like totally opened up the universe for them to to go in a bunch of different places and actually for them to be associated with with a lot of very high quality people. And I think Buffett said lots of times that his, his entire quality of life has been so much happier, so much more interesting because of the people that he's been able to meet and get to know and become friends with in the private business ownership space, rather than just purely trading, you know, public equities like he was early on. So that was a pretty big, you know, aha for him, I think, um, and led to a big difference in his life outcome. Um, so I think that that path of growing and learning and demonstrating that has been actually the secret sauce of Buffett and that he's just this learning machine. And so that shows up later in, uh, you know, buying different businesses at different points, buying a railroad, buying an energy company, um, buying Coca-Cola in 1987, because C's Candy had shown him what a good brand can do. He was comfortable to buy Coke at that point. So, you know, all the returns they've gotten on Coke from then were largely attributable to what he learned in C's Candy. Apple later, you know, 35 years later is exactly the same. Like he he kept learning this whole time. Right, and that's right. that's the real key. So that's that's why I chose C's as that that defining moment is because it was this he it showed the ability to evolve and get better. And I think we all have to recognize that we're if you want to compete in this game, you have to be always learning. You have to always be getting better. You have to be evolving. And so stationary like stasis is death. That's a, I think that's probably a, a great way, a, gr- a great place to end it. I've, I think I've kept you long enough. Jake, if people want to find more out, uh, find out more about you, where, where can they go? Where can, where can they? <laughs> sure. Um, well, you kind of choose your own adventure here with uh, whatever resonates with you. But uh, investment shop is, is farnum-street.com. 
um, you know, our, my, the, the podcast I do with the guys, uh, Bill and Toby, uh, is, is value after hours. It's on YouTube or anywhere you get podcasts. Um, the journalytic is journalytic.com rebel allocators on Amazon, uh, both print digital and, um, the audio. And then, uh, lastly, I'm on Twitter at, at Farnham Jake one, if, uh, you want to follow along there, which I've post stuff occasionally and probably spend just a little bit too much time there uh a little suboptimal but uh, (laughs) it's so addicting (laughs) it is uh it's it is so but yeah that's there's uh it's not hard to find me these days uh all over the internet all right perfect well jake thank you so much for coming on today thanks for having me matt it's a real pleasure uh that'll wrap it up uh if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, give us a, a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like and follow our channel. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7 Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone.